When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Forever. Dog. This episode of the Need to Fail is brought to you by Black Lives Matter. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Need to Fail. My name is Don Finelli. I run this thing. Um, my wife was unfortunately in the hospital yesterday. Uh, she's doing better. She's home. She's resting now. I'm not going to go into the details of everything, but I've gotten limited sleep and just been trying to juggle a lot of stuff. So excuse the tiredness in my voice. Um, also another black man was murdered in our country that does not value black lives. And I think a lot of people have said much better things than I can ever say on the subject. So I'm just trying to shut the fuck up and listen and learn, but also have to be vocal about my privileges own them and engage with people that I'm close to, to have difficult conversations that I think I've been avoiding out of discomfort. Uh, I don't think I make great public declarations. I don't think anybody gives a flying fuck what I have to say. Uh, I I tend to do stuff behind the scenes with individual engagement. So that's what I'm going to try to continue to do. And I also have a responsibility of being a parent that introduces as much diversity into my daughter's life uh, so she can look back and and see these uh, systematic atrocities as wrong, and I think we all have an our you know responsibility as parents to do that with our kids. Uh, my heart is with all my black brothers and sisters uh, out there, all POCs. Um, there's just so much hypocrisy; it's fucking insane. It's just unarmed people trying to peacefully protest centuries of hate and prejudice. They're met with violence, yet fucking white nationalists can just storm the Capitol buildings with assault rifles uh, because they can't get a fucking haircut. I mean, seriously, fuck off. Stop that shit. Like, all lives matter and you're shooting people fucking sandbags. Eat my ass. All right. Um, Rants won't change anything. Rants don't do shit. Sorry. There is some momentary light uh, to shine through all this shit, and that is my guest today. The amazing, the kind the talented curator of joy, Charlie Todd. Charlie is the founder of Improv Everywhere, uh, which is a comedy collective that stages unexpected performances in public places. Uh, He's been doing it for almost 20 years now. Uh, Their videos have over half a billion views online. Uh, I was happy to be a part of a few of these missions. Actually, one of them took me to freaking Hong Kong for two weeks to do a, a spontaneous mall musical about how you're never too old to sit on Santa's lap. 
Uh, Charlie doesn't even know this, but the night before uh, he told me about this opportunity, Laura and I were talking about where we would love to travel if we had the money to do so. We were broke living in Brooklyn. Uh, and I need to preface this by saying I never traveled as a kid. Like we went to the Jersey shore and that's about it. I think like a cruise to Bermuda and Florida once like that's it. So traveling for me at the time was big and scary. So she was throwing out some places and I was like, you know where I wouldn't want to go is like someplace like Hong Kong. Cause it's just too far. It's like too much, too fast. Like I, I, I think I would be so super overwhelmed and the next day, email from Charlie, do you want to go to Hong Kong for two weeks? <laughs> it was truly an amazing trip. I'm so happy I went. And that's all Charlie Todd. So thank you, Charlie, uh, for, for asking me to do that. Uh, Charlie was a longtime performer at the UCB Theater in New York. He was my 301 teacher. Uh, he's given TED Talks. He's wrote a book on this stuff. He's uh, made TV pilots, commercials, staged hundreds of public pranks and musicals and other spontaneous happenings. Uh, and he most recently created the series Pixar in Real Life, which is currently on Disney+. Plus. Uh, this journey was not easy. A lot of almosts. Uh, but you'll see his DIY attitude uh, has taken him very far in life. He is not waiting around for shit to happen. He's not going to ask permission. Uh, Charlie is truly one of the good ones out there. So I say we get to it. Here he is, the mischievous Charlie Todd. Like you, you're like the CEO of this company. You know what I mean? Like you, you had, you built something from the ground up and I'm so interested to know because from doing it with you, you know, being a part of some of these, uh, some improv everywhere things going to Hong Kong, like all these things were like, man, my view of you is like, what a nice, awesome, generous, like fun dude that started this fucking thing that kind of like represents his humor Man, what a great fucking journey this must have been for you. But in running something, I'm sure there's, <laughs> there's, I'm sure there's setbacks. Yeah, there've been a uh, lot of along the way, especially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's I can't complain at all. Like you, you know, I I I started doing this thing when I was 22 years old, and I had a GeoCities website, um, and <laughs> you know, I'm still doing it now almost 20 years later um i mean currently i'm not doing it because large groups of people uh performing together in public spaces is not happening uh for the foreseeable future so i i'm very much currently unemployed and very uncertain about when my unique expertise of performances in public spaces will be relevant or even safe again um it's so crazy that (laughs) i was i was i was catching up on some old uh episode like you know some old videos and I was like, oh, my God, everyone's so close. And it's like <laughs> yeah. the subway and high fives. Like Rob, Rob Lathan giving out 2,000 high fives to strangers <laughs> in the subway system is like one of our greatest hits. Right. It's like your whole thing is about bringing people together. I know. Is about kind of tearing down some sort of wall that we, especially New Yorkers, you know, like what a unique place. Obviously, this Improv Everywhere probably could have been developed somewhere else but it's so new york you know what i mean it so fits new york so well because people especially on the subway especially when you're walking around you have this kind of don't fuck with me wall up because there's so many people and it's just breaking that with like shared experiences or smiles or humor yeah is 
the biggest part of it. So it's yeah, exactly. right now it's, I mean, it's gotta be a little fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, hopefully 2021 is going to be, we're going to get a vaccine <laughs> and hopefully people are going to be hungry to go out and, you know, be a part of a mob of people, a happy mob, um, as we, as we so. like to create. But yeah, I mean, New York was the perfect place for, for this to develop. I mean, if you look at other people who are like, you know, YouTube pranksters, which, um, has become a category that I'm embarrassed to be associated with at all. Um, but you know, all the pranks are in Walmart. I mean, you know, most of America, yeah. like the only public square is like Walmart, our target, um, you know, right. or the mall. Um, and New York just has yeah. so many, so many great public spaces. Um, and that's yeah. really what inspired me when I, you know, I moved to New York in, in 2001, I was a drama major. Um, I had done a little bit of improv. Like I, I, I found truth in comedy at a used bookstore, read that and like tried to do heralds with my buddy Ken Keach. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we're just sort of making it up with, with other performers. I did short form improv at comedy sports. It's where I met Anthony King, um, Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other people who, you know, would go on to do stuff with at UCB. Um, but I moved here as really as a drama major, um, you know, wanting to do like off, off Broadway theater. And that's what all my friends were doing. So, I was just right. you know, moved up, slept on couches, worked temp jobs, was very fortunate that I had parents who were supportive of, you know, me just moving to the biggest city in the country, um, you know, com- coming, <laughs> yeah. coming from South Carolina, you know, they, I had a cousin who lived up there and I slept on his couch, but you know, they pretty much just let me pack two suitcases and move to a faraway city, um, with, you know, a dream of like being, being in a play where they, they were like more like, okay, yeah, go live your dream. I bet you you're going to come home. Or were they fully like, you're great. You're going to be great at this. Like, go get them, Tiger kind of thing. Somewhere in the middle. I mean, they were super supportive. Um, they were definitely not like, you'll be back. You know, there's no no neg- no negativity. <laughs> I think it was like, oh, well, Charlie's going to go to New York and his cousin lives there. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think they thought I'd be there for 20 years necessarily, at least not at first. But that, right. that was a cool place to move after college and, you know, almost have like a, a gap year or, you know, if nothing else. Yeah. But, you know, I, I stumbled into UCB that summer. Um, I had done a, a, a summer theater program the year prior in uh, Oxford, England. That was like, you know, Shakespeare summer camp for college kids. And <laughs> I met this guy, TJ Miller, um, who mm-hmm. was uh, at the time at George Washington University. And mm-hmm. he, he was a year younger than me, but he was like, you know, you've got to go to UCB. You're moving to New York next year. You've got to go to UCB. And the first mm-hmm. time I went was Delphos Marathon 2001 because TJ was doing a show with his college theater group. And that wow. was like, I walked, you know, I'd, I'd lived in New York for like two weeks at that point. Um, wow. And then a month later, I saw Harold Nate and I just got completely hooked. And yeah. right about the same time, I also just was frustrated with there being sort of no prospect of me being able to perform on a stage because I just sat down nonstop college theater and, and short form improv. Um, so I just, yeah, started, you're so used to being on stage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was just what I did. And I was like, well, it's going to take a few years before anybody, you know, knows who I am or gives a shit about me or I w- I'll have any opportunity. So I'll just make my own. I, and that's how improv everywhere started was just going to bars and, you know, playing a character in a bar with two other friends and, uh, you know, doing weird things on the subway. And it just sort of, yeah. you know, it began organically like that. And I started GeoCities website because I'd learned HTML in college to do my college <laughs> theaters website. I mean, I was there literally- go. College was useful. Yeah, it was. It was <laughs> like, well, I mean, college taught me like the, I went to university of North Carolina and we had mm-hmm. a very independent theater department that was very student, student run. Like the, um, yeah. the, the main theater company was student run. So you had to learn how to do your own thing. 
And yeah, right. I'm sure that's what drove you then to to have the confidence to be like, let's just go into a bar and fuck around. Let's be Ben Folds and let's just, let's just have fun and, and just truly pretend this and and see how far we can kind of take this. Yeah. And like some of those early things, like I didn't even have a digital camera. Like it was just, (laughs) I would would just write down the story of what happened and put it on (laughs) geocities.improveverywhere.com. Um, Crazy. And, you know, then I got a digital camera and then I met a guy who had, you know, a video camera, a mini DV video camera. Uh-huh. So we started filming things, <laughs> right. uh, you know, and then in the meantime, I, I took level one at UCB uh, October 2001. And I just started meeting a bunch of other people who were like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll go take my pants off on the subway. That sounds like a funny <laughs> thing to do, you know. Right. right. And I just kind of grew from there. Were you, uh, was it like guerrilla theater for you when you were in college that like sparked it? Was there some sort of like prank show? Was like Buzzkill or something out or something? Buzzkill was definitely an influence on me. I can't remember if I was in high school or college when that was out. That was at some point in the 90s. I remember being in like starting high school or being in middle school when that was out. So yes, late, early, mid 90s, late 90s, something like that. Yeah, I mean, definitely Buzzkill and probably Tom Green. Um, mm-hmm, and then right. the UCB TV show itself, which I watched mm-hmm. a little bit in college, they would typically take one of the like sketch characters out into Washington Square Park or somewhere in the real world for like the closing right. credits. And and the whole like the the like the the terminology behind improv everywhere of like secret agents going on missions was you know very much inspired by UCB's you know agent Adair and agent Colby and and, and that whole right. thing. I, I pretty much ripped that off. Did you like when you started doing this? It wasn't like this will be the thing. This was just a artistic outlet for you. Yeah, right? it was literally just like I'm I'm so bored and so desperate to create something, <laughs> and you know. I just went with my friend, Michelle, who I did college theater with to sit in front of the actor's equity building for like two hours to try to get an audition, even though we weren't equity and were turned away. And I'm living in an apartment with no air conditioning. And, you know, I'm going to take UCB class in one month, but Mm -hmm. I can't wait to do something. So let's, you know, why don't I just pretend to be a mime in Times Square with a friend and see what happens? (laughs) Just weird, weird, dumb, simple and that's and that's why I called it improv everywhere because now it's like the name is stupid and doesn't really make sense because they're these intricately <laughs> choreographed projects right, right. that are not improvised at all. Um, mm-hmm. There is a spontaneous aspect to them, of course, but you know, in, sure. in those early days, it was just like you know, I'd be walking around with a friend saying, "Hey, what if I start acting like I'm a mime in Times Square, and you know, you're you're my first audience member, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm performing in front of forty tourists in Times Square with no talent as a mime wearing street clothes." <laughs> What, what did you, were you ever self-conscious doing this? Was it ever, did it ever get to a point where you're like, what the fuck am I doing? I got to stop doing this. Or was there something exhilarating about just, w- there has to be something exhilarating about this, right? To you that like, yeah. you're like, I'm, I'm affecting people. And it was never, it never seemed, you, it always seemed not malicious, right? Like, did, was that like from the beginning or did, was not, not even in your thought? You were just like, we're just going to go out and, and fuck around. I think just my personality. Um, yeah. I, I can't stand it if anyone doesn't like me. Um, and you know, I'm just like constantly trying to, um, you know, make friends and, and smooth things over. So I just, it's not my personality. I want to piss anybody off. Um, yeah. some of the early things that we did, I think were, were like a little edgier. I mean, I did con 
multiple people into thinking I was Ben Folds in a bar for four hours. And, but, but even that, like when I wrote that story up, which was literally the first thing I did, like the, the spin right. on it was like, everybody had a great time. Like at the yes. end, I didn't actually take money from anybody. I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. try to sleep with someone or do anything unethical. I just like hung out with yeah. some people at a bar and fooled them into thinking I was Ben Folds because it was 2001 and nobody had iPhones. And I had, you know, two friends come in at different times and identify me and ask for an autograph. So it was just like, <laughs> Really simple stuff like that, that yeah. end of the night, it was like, no one got hurt. You know, it was something that, you know, it was dishonest in a way. It was a prank, but nobody sure. got hurt. And right. I've just always liked, um, you know, being, I'm definitely privileged to say this, but I, I like being places I'm not supposed to be. You know, if mm-hmm. if I go on vacation um, and uh, I want to be in the hotel next to our hotel's pool. way more (laughs) than our hotel pool. Like uh, Cody and I will plan vacations. Like we're going to go to this part of Puerto Rico because there's a strip of like 10 hotels and I can sneak in all these pools. You just like to be mischievous. I do. I like to see if I could do it. I get a rise out of it. I also just love pools and I like checking out different pools and hot tubs. But I'm with you. There's also just like, and, and I know that, I, part of the reason I can do this is because I'm a 40 year old white man, um, yeah. you know, who, who looks like he's quote unquote supposed to be there. Um, right. so, you know, my privilege is definitely unlocked to this hobby of sneaking in places. Um, right. but, but that spirit of just, you know, breaking the rules a little bit, seeing what you can get away with, but always in, in like a victimless crime manner where no one gets hurt end of the day, yeah. you know, I'm borrowing some pool time from a hotel. It doesn't matter. You were talking about in your Ted talk, like children are told to play, but given no reason why, you know what I mean? They're just kind of like told to like, that's what you do. And, and how now we both have kids. You see how vital that is for learning, for decision-making, for problem solving, all that good stuff. Like that is part of play and, and getting along right with other kids. It's yeah. almost like you're, you kind of kept that spirit childlike spirit yeah i mean i don't have like a peter pan like never grow up type personality or or Mm -hmm. or outlook i wouldn't say but i Mm -hmm. i do believe in lifelong play um Mm -hmm. my dad owns a sporting goods store it's a family business um you know it's it was the career i was supposed to have um yeah i was gonna say wow you didn't take that over huh yeah it was a career that was that was waiting for me my um great grandfather started it for my grandfather when he got back from world war ii um, Holy shit. And then my dad took it over and, uh, and my granddad has the same name as me and my dad and my son. Um, right. and you know, my name is on the door of my dad's office cause it was my granddad's name. So, Jeez. you know, there was definitely an expectation like, Oh, this is definitely something I could do. And then I, I fell in love with theater and improv and, and went in a different yeah. direction. But, you know, growing up, um, I was exposed to a lot of sports and, and like sports was never, was never outstanding at any given sport, but also just really gravitated towards like in his morning at store, I wanted to check out the hacky sacks. Um, you know, I wanted to check out the section that now has like spike ball, like any sort of like, just, you know, something like a sport that's like is competitive, but is, right. is really, you know, sort of fun and youthful. My yeah. high school, my high school friends, we played four square every day. Um, yeah. like junior year of high school, like, which is not when you're mm-hmm. close. And then I played Foursquare in college. I used to play Foursquare during the Del Close marathon in the back of the old <laughs> Chelsea UCB. Like I just, I gravitate towards these like silly fun, like, you yeah. know, organized fun is the phrase that I always use, but you know, yeah. I, I love it. And and that's definitely, you know, what improv everywhere is, is just, it's, you know, it's, it's adults going out and doing something that adults don't usually do. 
And I think that's healthy. And, yeah. you know, but at the end of the day, it's also just comedy. For, for me, from the start, from, you know, starting at UCB and starting this, I just wanted to do things that were funny and that made people yeah. laugh. And, you know, the, the documentation was part of it from the start. E- even if it was just right. text, it was like, I want to create this funny story so I can tell people and make them laugh. And you were talking, you know, you were saying before, like, oh, I've had many setbacks. Did those start early in the kind of comedy climb for you? Or was it when you were like, wow, I found improv everywhere is taking off. I have a vision for what it could be. And that's when the setback started. I mean, I started improv everywhere in 2001 and I wouldn't say it took off until really probably late 2004, early Mm -hmm. 2005. So, you know, there was like three or four years where it was just this website that I had that, you know, my, my friends, my classmates from UCB, um, would be a part of these things and they would read, read the mission reports that I was putting up. There's no YouTube, mm-hmm. so there's no video evidence of anything. It's just, you know, right. crappy photos <laughs> and text. Um, yeah. You know, and maybe like, maybe like Michael Delaney would tell me he saw something, you know, like my, my dream yeah. was just to impress some people around UCB. Um, and right. it was really just something I was doing for myself. Um, yeah. You know, and in that time, I just, I lived and breathed UCB for those years. I Yeah, it was a crazy time to be there. Like, I don't, that was an, that is early, you know, like that's early UCB. Like I think before it really started blowing up, right? It was right as it was starting to blow up. I think I took level one maybe a month after Amy's Saturday Night Live debut. Oh, um, wow. If not, yeah. then it was the next year. But I, I think I think she I think she started 2001 with Seth Meyers, like right after 9-11. Um, right. So and all of a sudden, everybody who was like, you know, on Herald Night or all the teachers were doing bits on Conan. So you could see right. like, oh, this is this is something that's taking off um, yes. and that there's sort of a and, path here that, you know, will get me somewhere if, if I work really hard. It, you're probably, you're, you're kind of, it, it's kind of like the same thing that you learned in college, which is like make your own shit. I feel like that was a big part of like the early theater, which is a lot of like experimentation, a lot of like one upping each other, like seeing who's doing the coolest thing and trying to do like something better or different, you know, there is that path there, but I feel like early UCB, there was, it was much less structured, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I, I don't even consider myself early UCB just cause I guess the theater probably started in 99 and I got there, right. you know, it was taken level one, two years later. Um, yeah. but I was definitely in that second wave of, of people, um, who were, yeah. you know, worshiping the first wave of people, the respecto Montalban and the swarm and mother and yeah. all those guys. But yeah, there, there was this, you know, amazing vibe there where anybody could put up a show. Everybody was trying crazy, insane things. You know, the theater on 22nd street was super small. I mean, I guess it was like a hundred people they'd pack in there. So the stakes were, were low, but at the same time they felt super high because those hundred people were like all your best friends or, you know, the people you looked up to. So, you know, but I, I, I met so many people through that, you know, that would become lifelong collaborators and people that would just, you know, help each other out. You know, Rob Hubel recommended me to his commercial agent. That's how I got a commercial agent. Right, um, right. Dan Powell, you know, approached me about trying to, you know, produce something, uh, mm-hmm. produce an improv everywhere, like, you know, sizzle reel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just like everywhere you looked, there was someone who could help you in some way or wanted to collaborate in, in some way. And it really, you know. Yeah. More, even though like my time at UCB is just very parallel path to what I've done with improv everywhere and in many ways unrelated, um, you yeah. know, all the people that I've met and all the connections that I've made from UCB is really what powered everything that I did with improv everywhere. 
you were saying, oh, no, I've had a couple setbacks. Is there one major one that comes to mind? Or was it like just a series? Or was it like a year or two that was like a little out of whack for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I realized, you know, probably around 2003 or so, I'd been doing it for a couple of years. And I started getting a little bit of press, like Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Grossman uh, wrote an article in Time Out in New York about improv everywhere. Um, He went on to be a Letterman writer for many years. Um, There was an Associated Press article. And then um, all this 2020 approached me, like the the news magazine show, (laughs) about wanting to like, put improv everywhere as a recurring segment and a pilot they were doing hosted. It was hosted by this is like late 2000 or maybe early 2004. And it was hosted by, um, the guy that did MTV movies, uh, Chris, someone, I can't remember. Um, Okay. So we had done this hypnotist prank that Anthony King and I starred in and we did it once. And it was, Mm -hmm. it was this Andy Kaufman cover. Basically it was an Andy Kaufman prank he had done where, um, Andy pretends to be a hip says he's a hypnotist and then hypnotizes right. actually Bob Zamuda says is hypnotizes people. And the joke is that it's all plants. So we went to right. Washington square park and like got random people in the park to volunteer, to be hypnotized and like a street performer show, but they were all actually UCB people undercover who yeah. <laughs> did whatever we told them to. Um, so it was like a super fun bit that we had done. And then we did yeah. it a second time because Dan Powell was like, I really like that one. I want to film it for a reel. I mean, I used mm-hmm. to, Dan Powell and I created a reel that was on a VHS tape. Uh, that's, how, yeah. <laughs> that's how old, Hell like we were yes. sending a VHS tape to MTV. <laughs> um, and then 2020 <laughs> came and they liked that, the hypnotism one too. And they asked us to do it again. And in fact, they made us do it two more times. Um, oh my Lord. And they filmed it with their cameras for this pilot. And they, and they said, you know, even if the pilot doesn't go, you're going to have a great 2020 segment. And then the pilot didn't go and 2020 never aired. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to like have all my friends come out for free to do the same prank that we'd actually already done twice, two more times um, for this thing that never happened. And then around the same time was in, was in like boiling points was blowing up on MTV, um, which was a prank show. Billy was in that. Yeah. Billy Merritt was in it. Katie Dipple Mm -hmm. was in it. Jeff Hiller. Um, It was kind of a mean spirited show. Like a lot of the actors who were on it, like, didn't love being on it because they had to really be dicks to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was super popular. And Billy approached me and said, you know, MTV's looking for more prank shows. You know, I know you're doing something. Um, you know, what can I, what can I share with them? Which was super nice mm-hmm. of him. So I gave him maybe a DVD at that point of, you know, a couple, yeah. couple of things that I had done. Um, and We're got getting a, better. Got a meeting at MTV. So this is like my first pitch meeting. Um, yeah. And Billy's advice to me was like, have like three extra ideas ready. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mm-hmm. Um, if in case they don't like it. So I, I pitched the Emperor of Everywhere show, which I think we called Mission Accomplished, basically uh-huh. the show that I had developed with Dan. Um, and they were kind of like not super into it. And, and so I pitched a couple of other ideas. And one of their one of the ideas they were interested in, they had me write a treatment for. This is oh. all, you know, completely unpaid, just pitching. Uh-huh. But oh, yeah. I'm going to tell you the name of this show. And I want you to know that, the, that this was 2004 and that <laughs> I was in my early 20s. And this is like 
15 years before Me Too. Uh, and I only set up Charlie. (laughs) I only realized like like maybe a year ago, how terrible the name of the show was. The show itself was not offensive at all. Uh, but the name of the show was bedroom assault, (laughs) (laughs) but I I pitched it to a, to a room with two executives who were female and they liked it and asked for a treatment. Um, but I just think at the time that's how tone deaf the world was that the word assault, like bedroom assault was meant something else. But (laughs) the the premise was like when I was in college, my roommates and I, we used to prank each other. Like if one person went out of town for the weekend, we would prank Mm -hmm. the person's room. Like I came home from a trip and my entire, my entire room was covered in tinfoil. Um, Uh like the light bulbs, my computer keyboard, like everything in tinfoil. Or another time, like everything was nailed to the ceiling. Like we just did these elaborate pranks. So the concept was sort of like a extreme home makeover type thing, but pranking, um, you know, bedrooms, friends pranking each other's bedrooms. But with a TV right. budget, you could like turn somebody's bedroom into like a Starbucks bathroom. So like uh-huh. you walk right. in and there's <laughs> like, you know, somebody, <laughs> a, a barista and somebody typing on a laptop reading a screenplay and then there's a bathroom and somebody's, you know, going to the bathroom. So right. I went in and I pitched that. They really liked it. They asked me to, to write up like, you know, five sample episodes. And then a month went by and I checked in and I got the message that this is just not original enough for MTV. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's already extreme home makeover and this feels like it's a parody and MTV really focuses on original things. So we're going to pass on it. So, so that was a bummer. And then about a year later, uh, they came out with a show that was called home wrecker starring Ryan Dunn of Jackass, one of the lesser known (laughs) Jackass guys that the pilot episode was, they turned somebody's bedroom into a Starbucks with a bathroom. No, no. (laughs) Oh my God. Did you lose your mind? I lost my mind. Yeah. I mean, uh, a year ago, you know, I, at that point, I think I had gotten a manager in between those, those two events. So I talked yeah. to my manager about it and they were like, there's nothing you can do. You, you signed yeah. something saying that they probably already had all your ideas, um, which I did, uh, um, uh, I guess somewhat naively, uh, but there was nothing I could do. Jesus. But, and that I'm ran, sorry, man. that ran for one season and got canceled. And, um, Ryan Dunn suddenly passed away shortly after. So I can't really hold any ill will. <laughs> sure, sure. And I'm yes. sure he had nothing to do with it. I'm sure it was just like somebody at MTV was like, we got to get another jackass spinoff. What's something Ryan Dunn can do? Oh, right. what was that idea we were talking about? You yes, know, right, and then that right, happens. Right. So, yeah. you know, it's, I've had a series of just, you know, failed TV development, um, really over the course of like four years until I made a pilot that also failed. (laughs) This is all improv everywhere related stuff. Yeah. All trying to get, you know, what I was doing, um, for the internet. And again, before web video, there's no videos of any things I'm doing, but you know, I, people were writing articles about it. There was like a New York times article. Um, and then, so you're just trying to capitalize on the kind of heat that you're getting on this and being like, yeah, well, this is, I have to, I'm going to parlay this into like, I could see this as a career. Like this is. Yeah. Cool. Cause at, at this time I'm working a nine to five, you know, I was a temp mm-hmm. for forever. And then I started working nine to five at this like event planning company, mm-hmm. um, which was a good steady day job where I could, you know, slip away in auditions and, and stuff like that. But, you know, I wanted to be able to pay my rent doing what I was doing. So I was trying to figure right. out a way to make that happen. And I was getting all this press for what I was doing for free and for fun with my friends and, and, you know, started getting emails from producers and I hooked right. up with a couple of producers through, uh, this improviser and writer, Laura Kraft, um, who would mm-hmm. later do a lot of stuff at UCB, um, and went out and like, 
pitched the Improv Everywhere show, got a manager through through her. So yeah, I I I went out and and you know I, I had my first trip to LA. I'd never been to LA in my life. Um, flew out there, met up with Lara Craft, who I had just met because she emailed me and said, "I think what you're doing is funny. I write for TV. I just wrote for you know Matt Besser's." Comedy Central show. And I think mm-hmm. that there's an idea here. So connected yeah. with some producers and went and pitched and we pitched to like every cable company um, and network, I think most, mostly cable all over LA yeah. and um, MTV was liked it totally different yeah. MTV people than I'd met with a couple years prior, but MTV was into <laughs> it. Um, flew back to New York, kind of waiting to hear and then, you know, got the email like MTV was very interested, but they need the right yeah. people in the room. We need you to fly yeah. back, you know, oh, and, I, you Lord. know, for me, All like on, dime. on my own dime, I'm working like, yeah. you know, a nine to five or I, I think I had recently quit the nine to five and I was on unemployment because uh, I technically got laid off. Um, so I flew back out there and the person that was supposed to be in the room, Lois, someone was sick, wasn't there. <sighs> <laughs> and the, everybody in the room was like, we love this. This is great. We're going to push this through. And then like, mm-hmm. you know, three weeks later, I get the email from a manager saying like, yeah, Lois just doesn't really get it. So yeah, she like, <laughs> it would be great if she was in the room, but she like, wasn't. So uh, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Oh my God, man. Yeah. Was it kind of this, a similar show than you were pitching or was it, did you tweak it? It um, was, or, yeah, it was, it was basically the improv everywhere show. I mean, it, I think it gotcha. was, I can't remember what it was called. So it had nothing to do with like the room raider thing. No, no, no. That gotcha. was just this one idea. I wrote a paragraph about <laughs> and then was asked by MDB <laughs> to flush assault. out. <laughs> <laughs> <Bedroom> <laughs> assault. So embarrassing. Um, yeah. yeah so so I, I been, just had a lot of yeah. false starts with like pitching yeah. and, you know, coming, coming really close. Did that just lead you to be like when YouTube started coming out? I mean, your videos, what are hundreds of millions of views at this point? Is yeah, like I think accurate? we have about about a half billion, which, you know, at one point was really, really impressive. Now we're not, you know, in the top thousand <laughs> anymore. But at, yeah. one, at one point and probably so YouTube started in 2006 um, yeah. and I, I or started in maybe late 2005, but like came out of beta in 2006. And I, I joined in April 2006 and it was wow. like. For me at that time, YouTube just was solved a problem. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, what's this new weird thing? How could I do something with this? It was like, oh, finally, I have mm-hmm. 40 mini DV tapes of 40 different funny things I've done over the past five years that no one has seen. People have just been yes. looking at pictures. Right. So all of a sudden I started you know, releasing and, and putting stuff on the YouTube channel. And that I, I was just lucky to be one of the first comedians on YouTube. It was like college humor and and us. Um, and college humor at that time was really like, I think still mostly on their own site, like that YouTube wasn't their priority. Um, at one point I was like number 40 on YouTube, like total and in in terms of subscribers and things as high up as I got, I'm probably not in the top (laughs) 10,000 now. I don't know. (laughs) Even with 2 million subscribers, it's probably not in the top several thousand. That's insane. Um, But yeah, it started getting a lot of buzz through that. And then I had another producer contact me who was a reality show producer. He had worked on like the bachelor and, and shows like that, which didn't really seem like a fit, but he, mm-hmm. he basically told me I can sell this to NBC. I think NBC right. wants to buy something for me. I think I can sell it to them. And he wow. was right. He was right. We sold a pilot to NBC like three months after that. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was late 2006 and that, that was exhilarating. You, yeah. What was, what was, what was, what was the concept of that same thing? Improv everywhere. Yeah. That pilot was, was it a little bit more. That pilot was called improv everywhere. 
Uh, mm-hmm. It starred me, Charlie Todd. There's a <laughs> humiliating, in retrospect, like animated um, kind of like like uh, intro stop motion <laughs> animation with my head on a small body. Being like, I'm Charlie Todd and I do pranks and I'm going to travel all around the country where you least expect it. (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm very proud of what what the content of the pranks were that we made for the pilot. But like the framing device was very reality show and a little hokey. And, you know, it was it was exhilarating to get the chance to do it. But then also it was a non-union pilot, even though it was NBC, it was non-union, which was I. on the one hand for me, I was like. I mean, I wasn't in SAG or WGA and I'm still not. So it like didn't, but it it affected like, oh, I can't hire all my friends or I can, Mm -hmm. but like the budget's really low. And, you know, I wanted to have that moment of like, I've been working on this thing for five years and now I've made it. I've sold a pilot. I'm going to hook up all my friends and all the people that have been working for free and doing all these things, you know, just for fun for years. And like, I was able to give, you know, Kula, a copywriting job, you know, or, or he, he wrote like some of the stand up two camera stuff that Charlie, the Charlie Todd character said, uh, <laughs> and Anthony King and Scott Brown wrote a musical that was yeah. part of it. And I was able to cast all my friends, but it was just like, you know, non-union rates. And it didn't, it felt like I had to like apologize. Like, Oh, I'm yeah. s- can you do this thing for my, NBC it's more show? favors. Yeah. yeah. You've been asking favors for years and now it's like, I know. It's usually like when you get that like title too, it's just like NBC pilot. People think like, there it is. It's the thing. And, and, and you quickly realize, like even now to this day, it's like, no, that doesn't really mean any, like you still have to hustle through that process as well. Yeah. And I got, I got paid a good fee for it. Like I had, I was an Mm -hmm. executive producer on the star. So I got like, you know, two pools of money and I had a nice fee Mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm thinking like, well, this is going to, this gets picked up by NBC and, you know, we do 10 of these or 20 of these, you know, this is going to be completely life-changing in every way. Um, you know, this is a primetime NBC half hour show. And you start, you start kind of dreaming about that and yeah, about, about what's going to happen. Your life. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and actually like right around the same time that I sold this, I got an email from Ben Folds asking me to impersonate him at one of his concerts. Holy shit. Which was completely, I mean, I thought someone was pranking me when I first got it. Um, <laughs> but it just felt like this perfect bookend of like, oh, I pretended to be Ben Folds at a, you know, a bar when I was 22 and now I'm 27 Mm -hmm. and Ben Folds is asking me to do a show and I'm going to be on NBC. And like Mm -hmm. this, the days of me doing this thing on the internet are over because I'm a TV star now. (laughs) Like, you know, I definitely had those dreams. And then, you know, we made the pilot and NBC liked it, but they didn't think they wanted to like retool one of them, Mm -hmm. one of the Mm -hmm. concepts. Um, So actually I, I found out that I, that the pilot didn't get picked up when the NBC's marketing department called me to ask if I would be interested in maybe doing a prank to promote the new show heroes during the upfronts. Like, you know, we want to do a prank in the audience in the upfronts because we have this new superhero show called heroes. I was like, okay, cool. Well, hopefully I'll be there because my show yeah. might be getting picked up too. And they're like, Oh, Oh, no one told you. No, I don't think that's happening. Oh, <laughs> it's like, no. Okay, yeah, I'll meet you for coffee tomorrow to talk about ideas for heroes. <laughs> it's like we won't pick up your show and now help us out. I know, I know. It was crazy. My question always through these kind of little things is like, what is keeping you moving forward with it? Um, were they, it, at the time, it seems like they're kind of, it's devastating news because you're putting so much work into this and you can kind of see the vision of it. So like when they don't happen, how do you how do you handle 
rejection. I, I tried to have like a positive attitude about it. And I, I very wrongly assumed like, oh, well, you know, this pilot didn't go, but now I'm a guy that made a pilot. So I'm in the pilot <laughs> club. So I'm going to be making a lot of pilots. Like, you know, <laughs> the NBC takes meetings for me and buys things for me, uh, you know, and just as I've heard so many other guests talk about on your show, like, you know, okay. no one cares. Yeah, just because you no. achieve this thing doesn't mean you're now at the level of achieving that thing and you're going to achieve that thing all the time. It, right. You know, if it, if, it, if it fails and you're back to essentially where you were. Um, yeah. And I spent like six months, it was a lot of limbo of like, well, we, we're not picking it up. We might do a summer special. We might, you know, have you reshoot something for like a summer special. And then uh, Kevin Riley was the head of NBC and he got fired and uh, Ben Silverman came in and I think just never looked at the pilot at all. Like, it, yeah. which is pretty common, just like come in, sure, sure. get rid of all the old guys stuff. And then, so then it was dead, but then we spent like six months, like maybe we'll take it to another network. And I flew out to LA and pitched it to the CW and the CW was go- interested, but yeah. ultimately like, you know, NBC owned it and it was just cost prohibitive and, and, you know, nothing happened. Yeah. But I, I guess what kept me going was that I had a YouTube channel and, yeah. you know, I kind of licked my wounds for a little while after getting the news. But then I realized, okay, well, I've got this YouTube channel that keeps getting more and more subscribers every day. So I think I just need to go back to doing that, which was depressing because, you know, the, the, the individual pranks we were doing for the NBC show had six figure budgets. And now (laughs) it's back to my wallet as the budget, you know, the friend asking friends for favors and doing it for the love of it. Um, Yeah, that's tough. That's that's always the tough part about because you visual because you, you you see it as like levels right and you feel it's almost like a video game where you're just like back to you know level one where you're like fuck I was so close to like in your mind beating the game yeah. you know and it's like oh there's this like dread that happens but it's in the grand scheme of things it's like you're higher than where you were before. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Like I always think of it as like an exponential sine curve for for any of those fucking math geeks out there but it was like you're there's ups and downs but it's kind of exponential you're still going up even with the downs it's still experience it's an illusion yeah it's It's still experience sure yeah even even if you're not in the you get to make tv pilots club because that club doesn't exist um (laughs) you do have that experience and the next time you have that opportunity or you're you know you're ready even if nobody cares about the credit um you you at least know strategically what to do and what went wrong and and what to fix so yeah. You know, there was that. I mean, another low point of this period was, I think it was about a year after the pilot, um, after we shot the pilot, I got an email from my agent at CAA asking me to send him his package feedback. Um, oh, no. <laughs> so, what? Meaning like I I had made, I'll just say it, I think I made $25,000 on the pilot. Yeah. And yeah. My, my agent at the time um, was like, and because it's a package, because I am also represent the producer. I mean, this is the whole thing that WGA has been fighting about. Yes, right, right. Um, it, because it's a package, you don't owe me 10%. And I was like, okay, great. Right. That sounds good. Um, right. And then, yeah, a year later, after finally, like, CW said no, and, like, this, nothing is happening with this, I get an email saying, like, uh, please send your agent $2,500. <laughs> like, oh, what? my God. That's gross. <laughs> I know. I know. That's fucking gross. But, and uh. that, I mean, I, you know, that agent helped me sell the show, and I'll, I'll always be, be thankful for him for that. But sure. he, he had very little support for me after, after it failed, because I kept trying, I kept saying, like, hey, 
you know, there's another New York Times article about us. Hey, we just had a video get a million views. Like maybe we can, you know, yeah. try to sell something Probably to someone else. Into something. And and right. his, you know, I don't think he really saw the internet for what it was at that time, but his attitude, he literally said, Charlie, um, improv everywhere is a used car and I can't sell a used car. Nobody wants a used car. So you need to come up with something else, which, you know, probably in in many cases is not bad advice, but I did have this just crazy momentum on YouTube happening at the same time. The other thing is like, it is a used car. Sure. But like you've been making it better. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a dumb analogy. (laughs) It's a bad analogy. (laughs) But this is not a depreciating car. I ended up firing him um, and, you know, just sticking with Manders. I haven't had an agent. Why? No, I'm kidding. You know, because I saw all the success that was starting to happen. I was like, I don't want him to like, you know, email me that he wants 10% of these things that are starting to happen for me that he has nothing to do with. Because at around that same time, like the YouTube partner program started and all of a sudden there were ads running on the videos. So I could, you know, I could go out and and spend $5,000 on you know, making a video and starting to hire right. like, you know, real camera crews because it, it might make $5,000. I might break even like, you know, all right. of a sudden YouTube became like this break even or make a little money um, proposition, which, you know, really enabled it to sort of be my job for a long time. Yeah. Were you the one generating most of the ideas and did you have like a team that you were working with or was it just like, because then you started just getting people are bringing you in like make a musical here and you know, we yeah. did a fucking mall musical and all yeah. that stuff. We, we wound up going to Hong Kong. Like, yeah. So. I mean, the, the, so, so really the improv everywhere has been, um, you know, a, a series of incredible collaborators over a long period of time, you know, from the early days of, of working with my various New York city roommates and UCB teammates like Anthony King and Chris Kula, mm-hmm. um, to working with Matt Adams for many years. Who was right, right. Also, I like subbed a class that Matt Adams was, was in, and that's how I met him. Yeah. And he like mm-hmm. said, I have a camera. Can I come film something? And I was like, yes, yeah. you can. Anyone with a camera can come and film something. I'm doing. I love Matt. Yeah. And I then, was in one of his, cl- one of his early improv classes. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you guys knew each other. And, mm-hmm. you know, he ended up filming stuff for many years and he ended up making the documentary on improv everywhere. Um, and then for a long time, Cody was, you know, my, my wife, Cody, um, we started dating and and she's an actor and she was a UCB sketch performer um, and an improviser. And all of a sudden, you know, she was really helping me produce a lot of stuff, especially as we started getting more corporate gigs and like touring gigs. And will you come do a right. surprise musical at, you know, my, my daughter's bat mitzvah um, yeah. or at, you know, this company meeting, like Cody really took lead in a lot of that stuff for many years. Oh, no. And then, and then just like sort of finally the most recent phase, um, which has been many years at this point is hooking up with the diverge guys, which are their production company in New York right. city. And yep. really like 2013 to the present, we've done absolutely everything together. So while improv everywhere is technically just me and it's, it's my thing. Um, you know, those guys have improv everywhere email addresses too. And they're the ones yeah. that have, you know, made everything look great for many, many years. Were there any videos or anything that you like didn't release? Was there anything that like just like went way too wacko or, or awry? Um, we've put out almost everything. There've definitely been, you know, things that went poorly <laughs> over, <laughs> over the years. I mean, the, the really, the stuff that's gone poorly is when like we've, I've been in handcuffs, I guess. I mean, we, we did the, uh, the YouTube prank on the rooftop 
um, right. years ago. You two was mm-hmm. playing at Madison Square Garden, and I lived across the street from Madison Square Garden in a <laughs> shitty four floor walk up, and put a U two cover band made up of UCB performers on my roof, um, yes. and wound up in handcuffs. Then um, did a, a very <laughs> in retrospect, I think probably the dumbest thing I've ever done um, <laughs> is getting fifty people to pretend to be mannequins in the Gap on on Fifth <laughs> Avenue. It's a funny video. I am. I don't regret it, but I, right. I, I had somebody email me from the company Morph Suits and they're like, we love improv everywhere. Can we send you a bunch of free Morph Suits and you can do something? And I was like, yeah, yeah. send me send me some white ones. Um, <laughs> and I had, I don't remember if it was like 50 or 100, but all these people zip up in their Morph Suits wearing Gap clothing, standing next to mannequins in the Gap. And in my mind, this is a hilarious prank. We're giving the yes. Gap mannequins and it is it was kind of like a scare prank where you're walking through and the customers didn't even realize that they were mannequins Uh it was creepy and eerie but really funny um but the security staff of the store thought it was a robbery because there were 50 people in masks in his store yes right (laughs) so he called 911 and the cops came in there real hot um and all of a sudden i was like planked on the floor in handcuffs Different than them calling the cops with like, I remember the, they called the cops on you for the um, Best Buy thing. And the cops were like, no, that's, they, they can dress, people can dress like this. It's. Yeah. It's yeah. We had a hundred people in Best Buy wearing blue polo shirts and khaki pants. And the police were like, eh, it's not illegal. You can ask them to leave. But this, the <laughs> cops, the cops that showed up for this gap prank, and it was the flagship fifth Avenue store that I'm sure does a ton Jesus. of revenue uh, on any given day. Um, you know, it was full of people in masks, <laughs> full of people in masks. And, and you can't, you can't see the other side of the mask. So you don't know. I mean, there was like a 20 year old girl you know college student was one of them there was a, yeah. a guy i collaborated with a few times he was like 70 was one of the people and this there was a moment where they started planking all the mannequins like just putting them face down on the ground aggressively oh. handcuffing oh. handcuffing them and then they started oh, unzipping no. the mannequin heads and it was like wait a minute why is this like why is this 70 year old dude and this like 19 year old girl who are these people this does not look like a crime syndicate oh. and i went up and i said yep it's all me i'm the organizer these people are just following my instructions Oh, and the cop looked insane. at me and goes, you're the organizer. They just amazed that I admitted that. And then just like threw me on the ground. Oh, me. Jesus Christ. So, you know, I, the most yeah. of my problems have been retail stores. Like, I, I, <laughs> but I don't regret it because, you know, it's, it's my dad owns a retail store. I worked retail for years and years and years. I think it's, you know, a blessing for a retail worker to have something funny or unusual happen in a store so long yeah. as it's meant to be harmless and fun, sure. you know, sure. lighthearted. Or get eyes on, yeah, like get get some attention, positive attention to it. I did a prank in the Virgin Megastore probably in 2003 where we had, this is back when they had CD listening stations. That's how old that oh, is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but I had like 50 people take over the listening stations and do a synchronized dance. Um, <laughs> and they called the cops. We got out before the cops arrived. Five years later, I got an email from Virgin Megastore saying like, hey, can you come back and do that performance with us for a commercial? (laughs) And then I think six months later, Virgin Megastore went out of business. (laughs) How do you kind of stay organized with all this shit? Like it feels like you're being you you kind of get bombarded from a lot of different sides and, and asked to do a lot of different things. Is there do you have certain methods of how you kind of run this business or is there like tips that you would share with someone that's kind of going through something similar or is on the brink of like, Oh, their shit's blowing up and they're trying to 
both organize it, monotonize it, like all yeah. those things that are trying to ha- have it grow? Is there something that you like should have done or that you did do that you're proud of? I mean, it's been hard for me to manage everything that, that that's come in, uh, particularly yeah. as a, essentially a one man company for a really long period of time. Now that I've, I've got Diverge and I've got, you know, mm-hmm. Andrew Soltis and, and Justin Ayers over there, um, yeah. you know, I have we have a Slack and uh, an incoming email comes in. We can all discuss it. We're strategizing and writing the email response together. And, you know, gotcha. it, it, I, I have a team now. Um, of, of, you know, very smart, very organized, very talented people, um, who I'm able to, you know, take on larger projects with, whether it's, you know, commercials that we make or the TV series we made for Disney last year. Um, Mm -hmm. but in those, in, in sort of the, the time after my pilot and, and before, um, I sort of, you know, really grew up with these guys and, and became more professional. It was mostly me responding to everything. And when you get a video that's getting 30 million views on YouTube, um, yeah. like, uh, our frozen grand central video, all of a sudden it's just, you know, a, a barrage of emails and you don't know what's real right. and what's good. And, you know, I had uh, managers and I would, you know, send a lot of the, you know, inquiries from producers to managers. I, I guess my, my main tip is make it very easy for people to get in touch with you. Um, you know, like just yeah. have your email address, you know, if you have a website, have a contact form that works and goes directly to you and respond, uh, you know, yeah. check it all that have it forward to your personal email, check it all the time and respond all the time. Um, yeah. cause every single thing that I've done, not every single thing I'll say, I would say 95% of the work I've done and the work that's like generated income for me, uh, through mm-hmm. improv everywhere has arrived in an email you know, versus like an agent or a manager getting something for me. Uh, right, you know, I've, right. I've, I've got a manager I've worked with for a long time and she's great and she manages the stuff that I send her. And there have been some things that have come to her first for sure. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of people think, well, as soon as I get, you know, uh, a manager, an agent, then, you know, I'm set and I can just wait around. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's creating your own stuff that makes people reach out to you. Um, yeah. And then in, in terms of just like, the nuts and bolts of managing it. I use text expander, um, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, I have tons and tons of text expansions of somebody writes and, you know, Oh, can you do a musical at my daughter's bat mitzvah? Or can you, you know, do something at a company meeting? I have a, you know, a quick text code that's going to spit back all the information about what we do and do not do with that. And, you know, um, having all those sort of form emails ready to go, um, I think is really important. Yeah, it's just for efficiency and so you're not fucking <laughs> writing the same shit over and over yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting because, yeah, one, yes, you have you have this kind of like mischievous DNA. You know, you're, there's this mischievous side of you. But also like the you're going to that college, going to, you know, uh, UNC and their kind of methods there like instilled this kind of do it yourself and guess, I guess having family, a family business as well. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. you have this, you have a lot of things going on in your life that are telling you like, if you're going to like, yeah, to not wait around, I guess it feels like that's like been your MO is like, I'm not going to wait around for this. Like I'm going to rely on my agents and manager when I need to. And if things don't work out there, I'm going to keep hustling on the side, like keep the momentum moving forward, I guess is like big for you. 
Yeah, I just uh, do it yourself. I mean, I, I don't know. In the 90s, I was a big, you know, and still am a big indie rock fan. And, you know, just yeah. love the like DIY, you know, Sonic yeah. Youth pavement. Like, let's who cares about major labels? Let's make our own stuff and we'll record it on a yeah. four track. And who cares if it sounds bad? Um, at, you know, in high school, uh, we we had a student newspaper that would come out. I think twice a year, like once a semester, the newspaper would come out and it would always be about yeah. news from like two months prior. Um, and yeah. you know, physical newspaper that they would print somewhere. And when I was a junior, uh, my buddy and I pitched the newspaper guy, uh, the faculty member in charge of it and said, Hey, what if we just like typed it up in like Microsoft word or Claris works or whatever we had at the time <laughs> and just printed it out and made Xerox copies and put it out once a week. And he said, Nope, that's not how we do it. And mm. we said, okay, well, we're just going to do that. So then we just started our own zine um, and we had to like give it to the headmaster every week for him to like approve it. But basically we just had our own zine. So that that's definitely been my strategy forever is, you know, just go. Not asking permission. Just go do stuff. Now, now that I have two children, it's a lot harder. I'll say that, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, a lot of people are using this pandemic to like really go out there, create, write their own screenplay. Yep. And I know as, as a, you know, relatively new dad, I'm sure, you know, like it's just yep. right now I'm just sort of maintaining. Yeah, you're just trying to keep some sort of you're trying to keep it all together even when the kind of wheels are falling off a little bit and you just don't have time. It's just a time suck, that's all. I mean, parenthood, you, you lose time. I've talked to many parents and maybe you've felt this as well. It's like makes you efficient in other areas because you have to be. Um, because you don't have the time, you don't really have the time to fuck around. But sometimes like you need some time to fuck around, especially if you're a creative, I think, to kind of I don't know. Let let the creativity in. Um, totally. Yeah. So it's it's a hard balance. I think having kids has taught me like, oh, actually, I can get my writing done. You know, during the day, like right. my my you know prior to having kids, like my my creative bursts were usually between like midnight and two a.m. or yeah. you know eleven p.m. and three a.m. I I put on yeah. some like ambient music by the album Leaf and like I'm gonna <laughs> sit here and no one's texting me because everybody's asleep and I'm just gonna get this done you know for four yeah. hours and then yeah. after having a kid when you realize like that's not gonna be your schedule anymore you're not staying up until three a.m. anymore um, you yeah. realize like oh I actually can get work done you know if it's like. I, my kid's going to take a two hour nap and he might wake up after an hour. So I have to get this done you know, right now. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what environment is better, but probably, um, you know, having a little more time and a little bit less of a deadline might be better, but at the same time, you know, you get it done when you can get it done. Yeah. It's like coming to terms with that and, and knowing that like you don't necessarily need to have like, you know, the table set to eat dinner. You, there, you, sometimes you need to, you have 10 minutes where you can kind of think of something and it just might not happen and you can't get angry at that. It's just like, well, if you accept that you have, this is the amount of time and do what you can write it down, see if it works. And then, you know, on to the next little chunk of time that you have, are you pretty good with like scheduling stuff? And are you like a big, like kind of type a put things down? Are you like a goal setter? Do you have like a very, you know, are you organized in that way? I've never been like a literal goal setter of like having any sort of five-year plan or um, anything like that. I mean, you know, for (laughs) the question that I most hate in interviews, not that you just asked it, but just in in interviews that, um, you know, Improv Everywhere related interviews in the media over many years was was always like, what's next for Improv Everywhere? You know, (laughs) where do you want to take this next? And, you know, my answer is always like, I don't want to take it anywhere. It's great. I'm having a blast. (laughs) 
this is super fun. You know, I'm doing my own thing. And, you know, for so long, my like goals and plan was, was just figure out how to keep doing this. Um, and you know, that didn't last forever. You know, YouTube, you know, I, I used to, um, do a lot of like, uh, speaking. I gave that Ted talk and then that, Mm -hmm. that led to a lot of corporate speaking, but also a lot of speaking on college campuses, um, Mm -hmm. where I would go and, you know, give this inspirational speech where I'd show my funny videos, but then like the message is like, do it yourself, do your own thing. Don't wait for somebody to green light you, you know, Mm -hmm. put your stuff out on YouTube and, you know, you can be a success like me on YouTube. Um, but then, what I've realized is, you know, YouTube can change their algorithm <laughs> and, and all, and all of a sudden, you know, favor people who upload, you know, 10 minute videos every day, um, yeah, or, right. you know, favor people who, um, are white supremacists or, you know, I mean, that's, sure, right. if you listen, listen to the sure. New York times podcast about, uh, about YouTube algorithm. Um, Insane. so, you know, I mean, like it's, we had a lot of success on YouTube for like, really there was like the glory days of like four or five years where everything we would put out would get a million views. Um, and then that changed and it's like, Oh, you have 2 million subscribers, but you're going to put a video out. And eh, I think 40,000 people are going to see it. You know, yeah. we're going to put that in we're, we're algorithmically, we're just not going to give that to everyone. It's not a, yeah. you know, subscription box is now like buried somewhere and we're just going to give people what we think they want, not what they subscribe to. So, Jesus. you know, that was tough. Um, and we had to sort of retool and be like, okay, well, we've been doing these like shoestring budget things for YouTube and, you know, kind of breaking even on some ad revenue, but now there's zero dollars in ad revenue. So, you know, what are we going to do next? Um, so it's, it's constantly having to, you know, to adjust to, to different things. And we're, we're very lucky that kind of right when that was starting to get really bad was when an opportunity to make a show for Disney came up, um, last year. Um, awesome. So what you know, was that? What was that show? So, so we made a show for Disney plus called Pixar in real life. And, oh yeah. That yeah. was you guys. Yeah. Motherfucker. Why didn't I know that? Yeah. That's so, amazing. Yeah. So thanks. So, so we made that with, um, I made it with, uh, the other EPs were, um, Andrew and Justin from diverge. So they, that was one thing where, where Disney actually reached, I think they looked me up or they found my manager through IMDb pro and, um, reached out to me and said, there you go. I had done this series called movies in real life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Back in the day. Back to the future one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, they wanted perfect to, role for Terry Withers. <laughs> that's right. Terry Withers was Dr. Emmett Brown. <laughs> so they were interested in doing, you know, uh, Disney something in real life. They had done some similar video. I actually remember when they came out, like a year after my movies in real life, videos there was disney in real life on disney's youtube channel and you know i think i rolled my eyes a little bit like uh this is a little similar to that thing i just did um but at the same time i don't own the phrase in real life (laughs) probably not the first person to think of it but um and and they had some success with those videos but to their credit they reached out and said we think you're the person to make this um so yeah we made a 12 episode series um ended up being with pixar is who they partnered us with so awesome it's nice too because we shot it all last year and we thought when Disney Plus launched, they would just dump all 12 episodes on the same day, you know, because that's what most streaming services do. But they right. chose to put them out monthly, um, huh. which is weird. They're like five minute videos. But during yeah. the pandemic, it's been really nice that once a month we have a new video. Yeah. Because yeah. we're not making anything else right now. Because you you go, you go, I'm having fun now. Is there part of you that is fe- that is full of like fear when shit does kind of end or you do see the end of it or it does start trickling out or does that like 
does that motivate you in a way? Like what happens at that point? That's a scary point where things have been working out and then they, and then you can see the writing on the wall that this is not here forever. Yeah. Yeah. It it is part of the do your own thing mentality though. Like that's part of it. It is. It is. I mean, it's, you know, always adapting and, and figuring out what's next, but at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm 41 years old and, uh, you know, Andrew, who I work with, was joking with me the other day, asking me what my TikTok handle was, um, <laughs> because he noticed that all of the impractical jokers are on TikTok and are, are you know blowing up TikTok. And you know, those guys are older than me, so God bless them for blowing up on TikTok. But um, you know, my my take is, I don't want to join TikTok. I didn't want to join Snapchat. I right. I don't want to make. I didn't want to make six second vines. Like I have this mm-hmm. thing that I do where I make like these two to five minute videos, and they yeah. work really well on YouTube when YouTube's algorithm decides they should. Um, and they work well as, you know, commercials. I get, I make a lot of, you know, commercials and and branded stuff, which is Mm -hmm. not, not, it's not like my ultimate goal, but that's definitely what's, you know, helped pay the bills for a long time. Um, and then I get to make them, you know, passion projects and, and every now and then get super lucky and get to make something with Pixar. So, you know, my goal is to figure out how to keep doing it, but you know, it's, with the the pandemic has definitely been a real gut check moment because I've said in many, many interviews, you know, in the past, like, well, I don't think what improv, you know, people will say like, do you think improv everywhere could be a fad and this will go away? And definitely yeah. there was like a flash mob fad that I sure, sort of, sure. I, I sort of helped ignite, but tried to disassociate myself with. But, um, right. you know, my take was, well, I think like creativity in public spaces, surprising people in public spaces is probably broad enough that it's not a fad. And hopefully forever there will be an appetite for like unexpected performance in public spaces. And then a pandemic yeah. happens where no one is allowed to get closer than six feet to each other <laughs> in public spaces for at least right. a year, maybe a year and a half. So, yeah. you know, I'm starting to think like, all right, well, what other skills do I have? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or know. how do you adapt to that in a way? Like, right. It, it's, it seems like you... I always like those problems where it's like, there's no way I can adapt to this because the very nature of what I do relies on a certain thing. But in that, I always feel like there's, I feel like that's always the room for like a really good idea. Do you know what I mean? That might not have to do with this particular, you know, this particular yeah. kind of avenue that you've been doing uh, for the last 20 years or so. But there's always, that's always like back up against the wall, like the thing that, you know, the thing that is your lifeblood taken away from you. What do you do? Yep. There's fear, but I'm guessing there's like that like creative spark that's starting to f- fly around. Yeah, I think constraints are definitely great for creativity in general and being told like you have to, you know, here's 10 constraints is so much better than just the blank page for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, but this one is a, is is really tough. I mean, there have definitely been people yeah. that have emailed me like, oh, when are you going to start doing, you know, a prank on Zoom or, you know, and there's been some inspiring things in New York. Like you've seen people that have been making videos of like people on rooftops, rooftop to rooftop. And, you know, there's yeah. definitely cool stuff that people are doing um, that's socially distant. But I'm just so sort of one depressed about the whole thing because, sure. I, I lo- you know, the part of why I've, I've chosen this path is because I personally love crowds. I love strangers. Yeah. I love the subway. You know, mm-hmm. when I go to a sporting event, like I used to go to the U S open because my dad threw a sporting goods store, would always get tickets. And yeah. to me, like, yeah, it's fun watching the U S open, 
But if a plastic bag gets loose and is like, <laughs> you know, going through the stands and floating up in the air and everyone's cheering and trying to grab the bag and then someone eventually grabs the bag and everybody cheers, like that to me is the highlight of the game, like of the yes, match. Yes, um, yes. Those sort of moments where, where crowds are coming together and, and you yeah. know, something silly is happening. So, you know, it's just to me, it's it's depressing that we're not going to have that for a little while. And yeah. with having two children and, and one of them in, uh, you know, a Google classroom where I'm having to figure out, you know, Zoom meetings all day long. It's like I don't have I don't have time to figure out what the improv everywhere during the pandemic is. I mean, I, I think I, that's OK, man. Yeah, you know I mean? I, I I've kind of like, resigned to like, you know what? Someone else is going to figure that out. Um, yeah. Maybe if this if this goes on for two more years, I'll have to figure it out. I do appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know, I know you got two kids. I know this is, it's been, and I'm sure it's fucking crazy for you. Um, well, I, I really appreciate I the chance appreciate to do it. And, and, yeah. um, you know, I, I've, I've enjoyed listening to your show for a long time and, um, Thanks, was, was bummed to hear the news that you're winding it down. But, you know, yeah. as someone who, you know, my, my wife and I have a podcast, uh, two beers in that we did for a long yeah. time. And, yeah, that was a, a live show in front of a crowd, exclusively live podcast. And that that theater was UCB Theater, New York, uh, for, first in the East Village and then in Hell's Kitchen. So uh, we've lost our theater space. And, uh, you know, it's but I, I but I, I know the grind of, you know, booking guests and, and putting out a podcast. We would only do it monthly. So yeah, um, it's, it's it's so much work. I know. There's uh, times they are a changing, man. We're going to see what's going to happen here. And uh I'm both uh, fearful and excited, and I think that's that's the way life is. So I think it's all going according to plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we'll go to Hong Kong again one day and do a musical in a mall for <laughs> almost the no best, reason. Man. <laughs> the best, dude. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Thanks, Don. I appreciate it. That was Charlie Todd. Thanks, Charlie, for doing this, buddy. Uh, check out Pixar in Real Life on Disney Plus. New episodes every month. Uh, check out past episodes of his podcast with his wife, Cody. Uh, it's called Two Beers In, wherever you get your podcast. You can check out Improv Everywhere's vids at improveverywhere.com or subscribe to their YouTube channel. You can follow Charlie on Twitter at Charlie Todd. You can follow me on Twitter at Don Finelli or at The Need to Fail. Questions, concerns, failure stories of your own, hit me up at the need to fail at gmail.com. Call 657-222-1324. Leave a message with some fairly failures or scream into the void. I'll play it on this podcast. You don't have to donate to the pod anymore on Patreon, but why not rate and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher and tell all your fairly friends to do so as well. That's it for me here. Got all new failures coming at you next week. Thanks so much for listening. My name's Don Finelli. Mahalo your dreams. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.